Hey y'all, it's Caitlin Breedlove. Welcome to the cold open for this episode of Fortification. We've had some shows in our archives that we're releasing as a summer season all at once. Um, they certainly have not been sitting there because we didn't love having the conversation. And um, really most of you know it's because Fortification is a love offering and is nobody's full-time cake. So when that happens, sometimes things take the time that they take. This was a conversation that we recorded in Oakland, California with the Reverend Dr. Tracy West, um, who I have heard about her work for some time, but this was the first chance I actually got to sit down with her and talk. And not only is she an incredible scholar, so I got to learn a lot of things I didn't know, but she talks with such depth and passion about the contradictions of faith and scholarship and confronting gender-based violence in, in places around the world. Um, it was a really helpful conversation um, and was very touched by her wisdom and her humor, so please check it out. For a transcript of this conversation or other transcripts and more resources, please visit auburnseminary.org front slash fortification. In that exchange, that we have the building blocks for the possibility of solidarity. And it's only in that solidarity, I believe, um, that we have hope of doing the kind of transformation that I'd like to see us um, engage in at the systemic level. Greetings, this is Caitlin Breedlove, and you're listening to Fortification, Spiritual Sustenance for Movement Leadership. You're listening to season four, episode four, where we had the privilege of speaking with the Reverend Dr. Tracy C. West. Dr. West is the professor of Christian ethics and African-American studies at True University Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. She is also an ordained elder in the New York Annual Conference at the United Methodist Church, who previously served in campus and parish ministry in the Hartford, Connecticut area. Her work and scholarship focuses on sexual, gender, and racial justice, gender-based intimate violence, and clergy ethics. We spoke at Auburn Seminary's Mountaintop Gathering this winter. Tracy, thank you so much for being here with us this afternoon. We're in Oakland at Auburn's Mountaintop Gathering, and I really wanted uh, listeners to Fortification to get a little bit of sense of your work and your presence here. And so I'm wondering if we could just start by hearing a little bit about your body of work. Yes, thank you. Um, so my work is mainly as a teacher, an activist, and a, I, I really consider myself to be deeply embedded in trying to be part of a broad struggle uh, against uh, gender-based violence. So, so my work is, is activist, scholarship, and teaching. So that, those are the three pieces, um, the ways in which I would identify myself. But, but I'm especially interested in working on gender-based violence and especially um, the systemic, uh, systemic fuelers of gender-based violence related to racism, more broadly, recently I've been doing work on uh, transnational understandings um, 
Uh, I interviewed uh, activists who work on gender-based violence in Ghana, Brazil, and South Africa. Um, so I just finished a big project that I worked on for years and years, um, interviewing those activists uh, with an interest uh, in how we here in the United States can learn from those leaders and, um, and learn especially the ways in which uh, they address systemic issues related to religion and racism. And, and racism, of course, differs in like the, the Ghanaian setting, uh, we're mainly talking about colonialism and the impact and legacy of colonialism. And obviously in South Africa, post-apartheid uh, issues, and in Brazil, um, the ways in which um, sort of anti-black racism surfaces. Um, and I was in a particular community uh, that's a predominantly black community with Afro-Brazilians called Bahia. Um, and Salvador. So, but I'm interested in how do we learn from those leaders here in the United States and examine our um, really strong paternalism. And my tradition is Christian. And so Christians in particular have a sense of people of African descent just being one big mission project. <laughs> and so um, trying to understand and, and, and really disrupt that paternalistic, missionary, uh, kind of imperial approach um, and, and, and to think about how we can be in solidarity. So um, that's my most recent project that's on my mind in part because I just finished that project. Um, but uh, I, as an activist, my work also includes work in the church. I am a United Methodist. I'm just taking a breath on United <laughs> Methodist uh, because the United Methodist Church is at war mm -hmm. over issues of human sexuality and specifically the exclusion of LGBTQIA people from um, having full equality uh, in the church related to ordination and, of course, uh, just receiving pastoral care, such as having uh, marriages uh, performed in churches, uh, and has kind of doubled down on that exclusion. And uh, so part of my activism most recently, uh, as the church doubled down on that exclusion in this during this year, has been to organize with um, people of color and trans and queer people, and to and to develop within the broader movement for inclusion, which is a predominantly white movement, um, to develop the leadership um, and solidarity among us, among those of us who are people of color, um, uh, queer, trans, and and um, so we created a conference and are creating a movement and our own language about liberation. So part of my activism um, is directly related to the church in that way, um, as well as my concern about gender-based violence. And um, so then the third prong, I said certainly, so that's sort of scholarship and um, activism and also teaching. Uh, so that's, that's my love. I love teaching and I do that uh, mainly in a classroom setting with um, master students who are preparing to be 
uh, leaders, faith leaders, and in a seminary setting. And so many of them are preparing to be ordained. Um, I'm in a United Methodist-related seminary, so um, many of my uh, queer and trans students are directly impacted by the rules uh, of exclusion that are part of the United Methodist Church. Um, but also I have students from a range of other uh, faith backgrounds and some who claim spirituality but don't have a particular faith background that they claim. But I teach, I teach ethics, and so I'm, I'm interested in finding ways to expand our understanding of, of social ethics practices that are that are that are that are that are lived out transformations of our of our society of our of our social way of of um, kind of reinscribing certain patterns of, of dominance. And so how can we transform some of those patterns of dominance and understand social ethics as not merely a set of rules. Mm -hmm. Often when people say ethics, they mm -hmm. think, okay, what are the rules? G give me the list. Uh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm not supposed to do. Um, and so what does it mean to have a sense of, well, that, that actually doesn't work, mostly. You give people a set of rules, they, they break them, they go around them. Um, and especially in churches, we create really massive theological hypocrite critical understandings that cover up the ways in which we harm each other. So that's, I know, that's a big plate of the kind of work that I do. Um, so well, it's a fascinating plate. It's, it's very interesting to think about. I mean, there's so many things I could ask about in that plate, but I, I was sort of struck by the question of what are some of the lessons that you would like activists in the U.S. to take from learnings um, from the sites that you're talking about and activists working on gender-based violence, particularly in regard to, to me, the question of paternalism in feminist action around race, around class, around U.S. centrism is so profound in the way even we talk about what the, quote, mechanics and methodology of social change is right now. But also that um, I'm very taken with the idea as somebody who doesn't have an academic background of like the question of social ethics. Because what I see a lot in, <clears throat> you know, I've been an organizer like almost 20 years now, yes. which meant I started when I was like basically a youngin and knew nothing, <laughs> um, yes. is that I think there's a hunger for that. I think there's a real hunger around what, what is social ethics that isn't a set of rules? What is principled engagement? What does it mean to actually come into that in this time? And what would it look like to do it in a way that was deeply feminist, that was deeply anti-colonial, yeah. that was deeply interdependent? And particularly, I think about that a little bit in my own time spent. My mom is an immigrant from Central Europe. My dad is from here. And um, spending more time back and forth in different parts of my life. Yes, the thing I notice 
with feminist movement happening in Eastern Europe versus in the U.S. is that they've completely schooled me and educated me on the question of what feminist governance is, like what actually a governance system looks like. Like if we are to actually take over governments, what what does that actually look like? And not in a dry toast policy way, but like what are the social ethics that then guide? Or is it enough enough to say we're just going to get more women elected, right? We're just right. going to get more women elected. Right. Fill in this identity gap. We get those folks elected, and then we will have feminist governance. Or right. Right. alone right. identity is the only thing that then will create social ethics that will spring forth from us, which, of course, we know there is a much higher likelihood that in the U.S. electorate, African-American women are going to vote for against discrimination repeatedly, and African-American communities will vote against discrimination. That's history, right? And that also feels like... People are like, okay, cool, I'm moving there. But the question of actually what a non-paternalistic, non-dualistic, three-dimensional conversation about social ethics that understands identity politics but doesn't only live there would be, feels like something that, it just feels like it's a little bit beyond grasp, Tracy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're not yeah. quite there. We don't quite have the language. And we could use infusions of, like, new ideas or examples. So I'd love to hear in both of those areas, both your international work and the question of social, social ethics, if you're ever sitting around in these movement space and you're like, oh, this would be an example that might be helpful to them. Or these would be some ideas that maybe would love to see be more in rotation. Yes. Well, one place I would start is the kind of anti-colonial work. There's a lot of ways to do it, but, but, but I'm especially interested in anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. So when my starting point is, if I'm speaking to a church group and I'm describing what it might mean to learn from, so, so I'm just introducing the idea of what it might mean to learn from act activists who are either on the continent of Africa or in African diaspora um, settings such as in Brazil. Right now at this moment, the minute I say Africa, it invokes Donald Trump's reference to Africa as a place of shithole, right? That disgusting, repulsive, completely dehumanizing understanding of billions of people is now normalized in the consciousness. That kind of anti-black racism is normalizing the consciousness in a way that is fresh. Now, I'm not saying new. Right? Yeah. So I'm not mm -hmm. saying new. Mm -hmm. I'm saying fresh. It's awakened. It's alive. And there is incredible doubt and suspiciousness that it's even possible. So one of the first tasks, uh, what I'm trying to explain is, one of the first tasks is to help us understand that we are in fact dependent. And we are dependent for our ability to create knowledge that is freeing, liberating upon each other. And we more now more than ever, we have to have a transnational paradigm. Mm 
It's it's just inescapable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where does where does Trump make this reference to shithole countries in this meeting with um with Democrats and and um Republicans in that private meeting? Dick Durbin comes out and says, "This is what Donald Trump just said. It's a meeting about DACA, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what the conversation is about. Yep, that connection's forgotten often. That's yes. really important. Yes. So, if we're going to do this kind of liberation ethics work, um, I'm especially interested in gender-based violence. It has to have a transnational frame." And a frame that in in some ways takes on some of these really um, sort of uh, saturating, overwhelming um, paradigms of anti-black racism. So 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 that kind of confrontation has to happen before I can even get to well so for example right so that's why I went there first is well for example because it's kind of an interesting example but I mean there's something in you that says but really you know if I talk about the targeting of lesbians for rape and murder in South Africa I have to quickly say but let's talk about the targeting of trans women of color here for murder, right? So I have to quickly talk about my own, I'm from New Jersey in in Newark and the killing of Sakia Gunn, a black teenage girl Mm -hmm. by um, black, um, this was on the street by a stranger who targeted her exactly after she said that she was a lesbian, right? So I have to quickly say, I'm not talking about a problem in South Africa we don't have here, but what I am talking about is the kind of spiritual call upon ancestors, political, in-your-face organizing with, with and against criminal justice, and an explicitly multi-faith organizing and multi-faith organizing across both what we here will call world religions, mm. right? So, and, and African indigenous religious, more spiritual based traditions and the need to have that kind of panoply um, uh, array of, of um, spiritual leaders um, and, and resources as well as um, having those have been victimized, the, ne- the, the necessity, obviously, on the forefront, and how those come together to emphasize, I don't know, certain strategies like space making. And so what does it mean, like cre- creating, creating, creating spaces of, of resistance, spaces of grieving, um, of, of recognizing humanity, of those who've been assaulted, uh, both who have died or committed suicide, as well as those um, who are alive and survived their 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 attacks. So I think about how what are the ways in which we here in the states are so it's such a challenge to pull together those kinds of resources and to view ourselves at the same time as interdependent 
and can be informed by and reliant upon and in solidarity with those kinds of activists transnationally. So that's a movement, it's a network, um, so that you have the sense of, um, of, of strategy, learning, learning strategies, sharing strategies in solidarities as you do the activist work, but also recognizing that the ending of the violence, which I hope is our goal, not just addressing um, people after they've been victimized, um, but maybe ending, preventing, that that can only come when, when you're really transforming the systemic. And that's why you have to get at this, start with the anti-black racism, right? That's so fresh now, and it's transnational. Um, the ways in which it's deployed transnationally against most obviously brown immigrants crossing the border, um, immigrants of color across many different, um, you know, nation states and racial groupings who are in DACA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, mm -hmm. so what I'm trying to say is that's the kind of strategizing that's intersectional, that's talking about sexuality, sexual identity, race, nation, spirituality, and religion. Mm. And, there, and, and it's, and it's a, a kind of mobilization that's, that's integrated and also claims the power to end um, the violence. So that those are the kinds of conversations I'm interested in having, but it but it begins with first confronting our our, our own um, um, deep deep uh, deep racism and and colonial mentality, mm -hmm. um, which Christianity equips us so well um, for those of us who are Christian, but we're in a Christian dominated society um, to to keep in place. Um, so those are the kinds of conversations I, I want us to have. Um, and, um, but it's about building solidarity in, for the transformation. Mm. Mm. I think it's so uh, fascinating to hear the sort of, the, the question of what are our strategies. And one thing I really loved about what you were saying is, um, for me, it's really like almost a queering of how we're thinking about strategies, like sh space holding, making, like space for grieving, like these as strategies when I think that, um, you know, one of my struggles in the U.S. Um, as a person of mixed ethnicity and, and um, really straddling a conversation on immigration as somebody who nobody cares what my mom's status was for a long time because we're white. She lives in the Midwest. She married a white American man, um, U.S. born man. Um, is I think this question of like both I've experienced in the U.S. the most profound sort of um, obliviousness of the power that we have as social actors in this country and a profound internalized inferiority yeah. believing as grassroots activists do possibly this is a controversial statement but in some ways grassroots activists in the U.S. sometimes know their power less than grassroots activists I've encountered in my fairly limited experience of the rest of the world. And I think that there's something to me about 
a spiritual feeling I have about what part of the globe is carved into what layer, almost like rings around Saturn, yes. of where you are in relationship to like the ground zero of late stage capitalism and white nationalism. Yes. And there feels like there's, it's just hit a point, like when I look outside, when I'm in the U.S., it's come so far. Yes. Um, yes. When I was in Eastern Europe this summer, they were saying, it's like, blockbuster world like everything's a blowout you know it's like everything's a blockbuster movie and even the way we've metabolized that in the left in the u.s right everything has to be huge more people more actions more extreme and yet are our strategies actually dismantling and making remaking the world anew you know when i think about what are we necessarily thinking about in terms of success like my dear friend, Kylie Mumbabero, who helped start Critical Resistance, right, with Angela Davis and other folks. You know, if people think, well, Critical Resistance, is it really around anymore? You know, are the chapters that active? What's happening? To me, I don't think about it that way. I think about it as, because she taught me to think about it this way, as an intervention made in the idea yes. of the carceral state, yes, of an entire generation of us being politicized around the carceral state, multiracial group of activists. Yes. Yeah. And then the dismantle change built. Like, I think I still have my CR t-shirt somewhere because it has the dismantle, like transform build frame. Um, and I don't think in my experience that we've been creative enough. And by creative, my subtext there is you know, transformative in terms of feminism, in terms of anti-colonial imagination, in what our strategies are. And yeah. I would even say sheepishly, you know, as a white person who has had the unbelievable grace um, and gift of mostly working in majority POC organizations, I think about when we built songs, Southerners Underground. And when I go in other places of the world and people quote song to me, I feel shocked you know, and people say, oh, come on, Caitlin, like, that's, that's like the perform humility. Like, you can't really feel shocked. Like, you can't really, like, you know, that, that it's a pretty big footprint. And I really do. I really do. I feel shocked because I think about when we had no money and we were doing camping trips because we couldn't afford any. People said, why is that the strategic yes. program? I said, it's the strategy because we're broke as shit. That's all we can do. We're going to bring mostly people of color and some white folks who are queer and trans to rural Tennessee and we're going to have a camp out and we're going to talk about being Southern and being queer and trying to be out. God help us, you know? Yes. Um, yes. And I don't think at that time we ever thought that there would be any, in some ways we didn't take a lot of responsibility for what we were putting out in the world because we didn't think it was shit in some ways. Yeah. Um, I definitely think some of our leaders of color had more force thought than me about the ripples it could have and as we grew and taking responsibility. But I say all this to say that it's extremely compelling to me when I think now about the moment we're in, where in many ways I think, um, you know, I was born in 1981. So what do they call us? A zennial, <laughs> right? Um, I feel if I'm totally in radical honesty, which I've just been trying to be in, even in public places recently, like... I think I look at myself and a set of peers where not all of us, but most of us are fundamentally bewildered by how much we have been part of, and those of us who are older than us, but we just happen to be in this particular threshold, how much the social justice movements we're involved in actually have shifted things in this country. And while we have Trump as president, 
we also have a slate of Democratic presidential candidates who um, really either feel that they need to perform caring or actually do care about what left movements in the U.S. think and want and see protagonists as having influence. And I frankly read us, and I'm criticizing myself first, as fundamentally unprepared. And so to think about this question of what does it mean to go from this doesn't this isn't a maturity sequence. I'm not trying to imply that. But to go across a spectrum in time of where we need to know how to resist, we need to know how to organize. But are we willing to govern? Are we willing to um bring those kinds of answers, not only govern elected positions, which more people that I'm close to have run and won than ever before in my life. If you would have told me that 10 years ago, I would have been like, you're fucking kidding. There's no (laughs) way, right? Um, But also to be willing to take responsibility for roles where you have to make really tough decisions. And so when I think about the social ethics stuff you're naming too, I was saying the other day that like, when I'm really trying to figure out interviewing organizers to work with more closely, which yes. I work with many right now, one of the questions I'm asking is, how do you feel in situations, how do you feel about nuance, complexity, and contradictions? What comes up for you with that? When you encounter things you see as those three, what is your response? Where yes. do you go? Yeah. Because I actually think there's something deeply in this question about moving past the paternalism to actually be a steady hand in some ways as we're doing this transformative work. Because even as these forces so aligned against us, which I completely agree with you, I think we are are out to lunch about the depth of the freshness of the anti-black and incredibly racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant sentiment that is specifically to the poorest and darkest immigrants coming from Central and South America. As someone who lives in Arizona, I see it quite a bit. Yes, Um, yes. That I think in the face of that, how do we figure out what we're bringing to this struggle, to this tension? And I think that the question of how we take seriously the space holding, the transformative, the simply naming that there's another alternative and then getting very imaginative and very concrete in some ways about what that could look like. And I I don't think, I mean, the final thing I'd say is last season we interviewed Amita Swadin about childhood sexual abuse on this podcast. And I mean, completely blew my mind. It was a very difficult conversation for me because she's so explicit about her work and her experience with that. But one of the questions she named that I think is really powerful is she said, you know, we're in this time where we can imagine, you know, free college for everyone in the United States, Medicare for all. But can we imagine a world without childhood sexual abuse? Right. Which I also feel like has been the work of Aisha Shadia Simmons and other people for a long time, yes, right? Yes, yeah. But that imagination work, that feels like that creates a muscularity that's so deep yes. for the other, the other work. I guess that wasn't a question, but more of a riff. But I just was very interested in how you were talking about that in a transnational formation and way. Yeah, no, it's crucial. You know, I think I'm, I was just thinking about your question about about ethics and I th- my simplest understanding is ethics is always the relationship between our vision of what is right and good and our practices. 
how we are actually living out what is right and what is good and in in movements um, especially religious and spiritually based movements we have a unique challenge because our rhetoric <laughs> is so developed and sophisticated and and just and charismatic. I mean, we can give the speech, the sermon, the talk that just, you know, uh, galvanizes an audience. I, I, you know, I can, I can just picture the folks who can do that, who can put the language together about, about the vision and give you language so that you can see it. And, and, and so the moral imagination for for the kind of solidarity I'm talking about to end the gender-based violence is absolutely crucial. But the imagination has to be directly related to what kinds of practices reflect that the principles that are being articulated, the rhetoric that is that is that that constitutes that guiding vision. And one of the biggest challenges I think is is how often we're caught in that hypocrisy how often that leader is in fact sexually abusing someone in the movement <laughs> um, on the side or exploiting um, and um, how often unfortunately um, there 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 are ways in which our um, our, our the, the compromises this is getting to the compromises that we make often sacrifice those who have the least power and are stigmatized mm -hmm. the most in our communities. Um, so we, all, we always have to make compromises when, when we're making concrete, practical choices about advancing an agenda in particularly institutionalizing it in some way. But too often it is precisely the groups who have the least status and power who, who we are willing to sacrifice. Um, and, and so that, to me, that's the, that's the social ethics piece, is to keep those connected, the vision of, uh, of our rhetoric related to um, caring about those who are, um, who are being victimized by the xenophobia um, and, and racism and um, heteronormative, heteropatriarchal values that are fueling because they're, they're perpetrator logic. Mm -hmm. So they're fueling, giving permission for, and tolerance of the sexual abuse and the sexual assault and the domestic violence. Um, so mm. yeah, if that's to me, that's the key to ethics. But, um, but where do I see some of the, yeah, I think, one place that's very hard for me right now, it's just a conversation I was just having earlier today that pops in my mind. Uh, we, we were talking about the movement for um, the elimination of bail mm -hmm. and a strong movement um, among Black Lives Matter activists and others um, to not only reform criminal justice system, but to move towards abolition of prison. Um, and I have advocated, encouraged um, people who have raped 
been raped, to call the police on their perpetrator, to testify, um, to do everything they can to make sure that that person is put away. And, 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 and I feel strongly that that moment um, after being assaulted, whether it's a domestic assault, assault excuse me, or a sexual assault, that moment of seeing that in that crisis moment of seeing that perpetrator arrested can be a moment of feeling safe, momentary, mm -hmm. but knowing that bail is going to prevent that person from being able to terrorize, stalk, threaten, and ultimately, of course, harm, um, can be a breathing space for figuring out how to get safe, how to be safe, how to be as safe as possible, especially if you don't have a lot of resources, uh, you know, to go to your third home in the, whatever, the, in the Caribbean or in, the, you know, Europe, some European island or something. Um, so if you don't have those kind of resources. And so that's one of the places where, um, you know, I, I have taught in prison. I've spent time have taught men in prison. I, I've actually, one of my classes in prison uh, in New Jersey with men, I've taught in the women's prison, but when I was teaching in the men's prison, I did say, I'm uncomfortable sitting here with you guys because you need to know um, that I actually have supported men being put in prison um, who have beaten up their girlfriends and uh, wives and, um, and sexually assaulted. Um, and so, you know, we need to talk about that and be in conversation about that. Um, so I think that's just a place where there are contradictions because, of course, it is an unjust, racist, criminal justice mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, there is tremendous risk, particularly for persons of color, particularly for brown and black persons, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to say I'm going to say particularly women, although that's not the only people who get assaulted. But I'm going to emphasize women who call the police in crisis situations. There's risk to the women mm -hmm. when the police come. Mm -hmm. um, so that is absolutely a place of uh, contradiction that I wrestle with and struggle with uh, because safety has to be, uh, yeah, safety and respite from threat. Uh, and there isn't anything else in place at the mm -hmm. moment, right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a place of contradiction in sort of, I think a lot about the gap between those people who ascribe to sort of um, a left agenda, how small that group of humans is in a country of 450 million, and how many people are actually deeply with us on many parts of our agenda. And I think you're also speaking to the contradiction in some of the gaps. Like mm, when you're an organizer and you door knock in working class communities, multiracial working class communities, I have yet to live in a community where when you knock doors um, in working class communities, people say, yep, I want the police completely gone, right? The, the traction I've seen is, is like, could we, for example, in Phoenix, the um, 
police department is doing horrible, brutal things to poor people across the board, particularly black and brown, and also a lot of people dealing with mental illness. We've been able to gain some traction saying, well, $771 million is going to the police department. Could we limit that? Could we make that smaller? Could we get every young kid who's in there because of weed possession out? Could we reallocate police officers to be EMT workers? You know, actually, like a lot of a lot of think tank people think that people don't get that because they're um, talking and reading at a fourth grade level. Well, you know, my grandfather read at a fourth grade level and I talk politics with him all the time. It's one of my favorite stories to talk about. Um, it taught me how to knock doors. You know, people actually are very ready to have a different kind of conversation about allocation. Yeah. Right. And. You know, from a sort of very elite, privileged, leftist position that is boring, quote unquote, right? Like they want to have this really specific conversation yeah. about yes. abolition. And yes. yet abolition is um, a concept that is in contradiction in times with how people are really living, what people are actually asking us for, right? Yes. And yes. I think it's also a conversa- another world is possible conversation, a frame that's incredibly helpful, right? But I think what you're saying is so um, helpful to me around the, the relationship between vision and practice. Because I think part of the crisis of faith that people have and why they're voting with their feet to not be f- part of what they would consider a far left is the the large distance between vision and practice. And I mean, I already spoke about this once today in this podcast, but I feel like it's so alive in a different way in this conversation. I was talking about like mm, how much I ruminate on um, the t-shirt getting hip again that has the James Baldwin quote that says, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Mm-hmm. And I see younger activists wearing this all the time. And I think in no kind of shade or negative way, I want to talk about what that means for different people mm-hmm. and how what it means for different people if they're walking down the street and they read it. Because to me, it's actually incredibly profound. And in many ways, it's an indictment. I put that in quotes because I don't mean it in a legal sense. But of the profound hypocrisy between the distance, both in faith institutions, but also in in far left rhetoric, I think, yes. between the vision and the practice, yes, right? right? And so the sort of calling bullshit on like, this is what y'all are saying, but this is what we're actually seeing. Yes. The pressure even on the Democratic Party in the United States to say, this is what you're saying, this is what we've seen, is consolidation of power for white billionaires, right? Like, where is the distance there? And so then the question becomes to me, in terms of leadership, maybe leadership is not this big blockbuster, individualistic, charismatic idea right now. But in fact, those of us who are just trying to tighten the gap a little bit more each day between the pretty large chasm that the conditions of this country create between our vision and our rhetoric, which people like me got real good at doing a lot of panels, running an organization, funded by private philanthropy, right? Yes. And the practice of like what it actually looks like to live those values out, engage these questions with courage, say there are contradictions, say I'm doing the best I can every day in this particular way, and this is how I'm working that strategy collectively, not yes, alone. Yes, and staying accountable mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. all the folks who have a stake in it mm-hmm. um, and and finding ways to continue to stay accountable. Um, as a, I, In part, that's the example I'm trying to raise about sitting in prison with men and saying to that men who are prisoners and saying to them, this is a... Like, so talk to me. Um, 
you you need to talk to me. This is what this is how I feel. I have to tell you this is this is tough for me um, to see you guys um, because yeah, we need to talk about abuse and violence. And when we had some really difficult, painful conversations um, about their views of women and the roles that women had played in their lives and in for some of them um, um, and in and the kinds of folks that they blamed for um, some of the problems that had arisen in their lives and at the same time um, yeah some of the guys talking about a few of them talking about seeing their own mothers and women in their lives abused and um, the kinds of trouble that they got into um, as they tried to stop that and um, how that also contributed. And so them trying to say to me, listen, th there's a real complex picture here as you're sitting here to say what you're saying to us, all right? So you need to hear back from us a range of places we're coming from um, and, and, and um, not make generalizations. So, I mean, so th that's that kind of accountability is just crucial, uh, I think, absolutely. I, you know, I, th I was thinking about also just to model the courage to give that example in a podcast. Like, I just think that, that people, there's also just this shame around naming the contradiction, you know, it's easy for me to talk about my family of origin, um, you know, people in my life that I love who have been incarcerated. It's not as easy to talk about both my partner and I as class ascenders that bought a nice house in Phoenix and are living there, like the contradictions between sort of like the core values and then the like, yeah, and these are the decisions that we've made, you know, to give our toddler a nice home where, yes. you know, we yes. have a night, we wake up, we yes. look at the tree. I mean, it's just like, I think those questions are also, and yet I think they're the way that people find a way back to trusting us, you know, no matter where we are, um, public voices. You know, I say that in the least, hopefully the least pretentious way ever, but there are, there is a question of like a longing for um, public voices that will name that contradiction and yeah. the yes. question of those yes. folks as yes. more, just more trustworthy without trustworthiness being a manufactured product yet again, right? It's not authenticity as a product, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because what I'm trying to talk about is, is, is method. Fundamentally, that's what I'm talking about, is how we do this work and give examples. And when I'm talking about learning from leaders in Africana settings, I'm, describe, I'm describing all the ways in which I, I make mistakes, I'm trying to I'm trying to listen mm -hmm. and and some of the folks I'm interviewing are saying uh, you know you're not listening you're not hearing me you're not understanding there's no African um, <laughs> in the African Americanness uh, that I'm bringing <laughs> I mean it, no mm -hmm. no substantive meaning to it mm -hmm. when I'm on the continent and when I'm talking to some of those leaders and needing to have I am a US person with all of that dominant imperial um uh influence and power um that they're needing to try and confront me on and but it's in that exchange that we have the building blocks for the possibility of solidarity 
And it's mm. only in that solidarity, I believe, um, that we have hope of doing the kind of transformation mm. that I'd like to see us um, engage in at the systemic level. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank y'all so much for listening. That was a beautiful episode. It was great for me to get a chance to re-listen to it. Um, please check out the other episodes that are in our sort of older pre-archival pack here of season four. There's some great, some great folks um, coming up and more. So if you want to, please enjoy the rest of the season. For transcripts and more resources for fortification, as usual, visit auburnseminary.org front slash fortification and fortification is a co-production of Auburn Seminary and Side with Love, which is a campaign of the Unitarian Universalist Association. And it literally happens because of Nora Resman with additional support from moi and David Beasley, Dan Greenman, and Nora are audio engineers for this work. David Beasley is our editor.